Good evening. Hi there. I'm Pastor Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip Deacon. Thank you for coming out on a beautiful October. Is there a squealing in yes. this room? Um, hmm. Why don't you turn my mic? Can you see my mic back there? We could turn it down maybe a little bit. Here comes Scott to save the day. Hopefully this will help. Is that better? No? Yes? We're going to just spend the whole night doing a sound check. <clears throat> All right. Uh, thank you for coming out on a beautiful October day. This is the start of, it's hard for me to believe, the 11th season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. Um, how many of you have never been to one of these talks before out of curiosity? Some of you? Okay, wow, wonderful, good. It's good to have you here. Thanks for coming out. If you have been here, you know that we cast a very broad net, uh, have had all kinds of topics, um, everything from faith and work and faith in medicine and faith in the evening news. Uh, we've done a few on family issues, and we thought we would start this year with something a little focused uh, on parenting or grandparenting or a topic that's dear and near to the heart of anyone who loves children. I will tell you, after our speaker presents, um, and he'll probably talk for about an hour tonight or so. Uh, there'll be an opportunity for some Q&A, and you can ask your questions uh, at either the microphone there or there. And you will have a chance to talk to him, by the way, in the narthex following uh, the event, where we also have one of his books for sale. Uh, tonight's speaker is a medical doctor who practiced medicine in, in the Washington, D.C. area for a number of years before turning his attention to uh, adolescence and uh, he's done a ton of research on it. He talks all over the world. I always ask my speakers for a little bit of biographical information that might be interesting that's not on their um, bio. Uh, one of the things he said is he's actually been to the Twin Cities a lot. He came here a number of years ago to speak to Cargill, believe it or not, about issues around children. He is also a big fan, we have learned in our correspondence, of C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors. I don't know if any of you care about that, but now you know. <laughs> and we're thrilled to have him here. Will you help me welcome Dr. Leonard Sachs? Thank you. Thank you. Well, I certainly want to thank Pastor Westmeyer for the warm welcome that he and his staff have given me. I had the opportunity to meet earlier today with uh, the youth pastors from this church and some others, and I think we had a, a good conversation for about two hours. Um, this won't be as long, though. Uh, we're going to try and cover a lot of material, though, uh, before uh, we hit 8 o'clock. As you heard, I'm a medical doctor. I'm board certified in family medicine. Um, I earned my MD and also my PhD in psychology, both at the University of Pennsylvania, and practiced for 19 years in the suburbs of, of uh, Washington, D.C., mostly Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, I am now in practice in Chester County, Pennsylvania. But I want to tell you about a family I knew very well uh, in my Maryland practice, a good family. And by a good family, I mean uh, parents who love one another and who love their kids. That's my definition of a good family. And in this case, it happens to be an affluent family. The parents uh, are both... Uh, university-educated professionals, and they have two kids, younger son, older daughter. Uh, they were very proud of the younger son, uh, excuse me, the younger daughter, who's 13 at this point, uh, and 
she was getting just about straight A's. Lots of activities, lots of friends. Parents thought everything was going great with Emily. They were concerned about the older brother, Justin, who was 15. Very intelligent, but not working. Not working anywhere up to his abilities. His father said to me, he said, the thing that really concerns me about Justin is that Justin is not concerned. He doesn't seem at all bothered by the fact that um, he's on a trajectory to be a, a bum at the age of 24. Um, he doesn't seem to realize there's really not much of a future in being an average player of video games. Um, it's just not uh, a good career track. Uh, but the father was quite right. Uh, Justin was flunking out of Spanish and doing poorly in some other subjects where he could do well. He just wasn't motivated. Wasn't interested. The parents were concerned, and rightly so, about Justin. But I had a long talk with Emily, and it turns out Emily is having trouble getting to sleep and trouble staying asleep. She wakes up at two in the morning, obsessing about the one slice of pizza she ate for supper. She's convinced she's fat, even though she isn't. And now we found out that she's cutting herself with razor blades on her left upper inner thigh, where she didn't think her parents would look. Emily has some real issues. She looks great on the outside, but she is really struggling. Justin, on the other hand, is happy as a clam. He can polish off an entire pizza without any remorse, <laughs> and he sleeps real well. He'll sleep till noon. Basically, I have to kick him to get him out of bed. Emily's having problems. Justin's having problems, but they're really different problems. And I found that that was typical. Um, that's not unusual. It's typical. But it's the same family, same parents. But girls are having one kind of problems, and boys are having very different problems. And if you're going to be effective as a parent or a professional, you need to understand those differences. If you say, well, we need to help kids relax, that might be helpful for Emily, but it's not what Justin needs. He needs a kick in the pants. So the problems are different problems. Let's talk for just a few minutes about what I see as some of the problems that are much more an issue for girls than for boys. Jean Twang is, I believe, a, a scholar of immense importance. She's really uh, doing some work we all need to pay attention to. Jean Twang, who was a professor at Michigan, she's now at San Diego State University, she was really the first to recognize that we have large databases of how kids have answered the same questions over 50, 60, in some cases 70 years. The Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scale, usually abbreviated the HAM-A, is a questionnaire that was first published in 1959 for psychologists to use, and it's still in widespread use which means that psychologists have been asking children and teenagers exactly the same questions for more than 50 years. Questions like, do you ever feel so anxious it's difficult to concentrate or focus? Do you ever have trouble getting to sleep or staying asleep? And Jean Twain recognized that because we have these large databases of how kids have answered exactly the same questions using exactly the same wording over more than 50 years, we can compare. We can compare across time. Now, it's not easy to compare across time in that way. 
you have to control for every demographic parameter. It wouldn't be meaningful to compare a middle-income Iowa farm girl from the 1960s with an affluent Latina girl living in suburban New Jersey from 2007. There's too many parameters in play there. You have to control for race, ethnicity, household income, region of the country. Turns out, big surprise, that the upper Midwest is different from Texas, which is different from the Southeast, which is different from California, and so forth. But she controls for all those parameters. And what she finds is that when you make the comparison, controlling for those parameters, what you find is that the average American girl today, and I'm talking, we're going to focus on white kids. Uh, it is also true for black kids. Asian kids are kind of a little bit different here, but uh, most of the people I'm seeing here tonight are white people, so we're going to focus on the white story. Asians, similar, it's a little different. We can talk about it later if you want to. But for middle-income and affluent white kids, it is absolutely the case that girls today are way more anxious than middle-income white girls were 40 years ago. In fact, the average middle-income white girl today is more anxious than the average middle-income white girl admitted to a psychiatric unit for treatment of anxiety 40 years ago. Or as Jean Twang has said, the average girl today is a nutcase by the standard of 40 years ago. And she doesn't mean that in a pejorative sense, but in a descriptive sense. Meaning if you took a girl from today and used a time machine and put her back in 1973 at a doctor's office, the doctor would say, you have trouble getting asleep because you're anxious, you have trouble staying asleep because you're anxious, you can't concentrate or focus before you're anxious. Well, we have to put you in the hospital. Because that was very unusual in that era. It's common today. Jean Twain calls this era, the era in which we now live, the age of anxiety, because it is for most American girls. So I'm looking around this beautiful sanctuary, I might add, looking around this sanctuary, and I see a number of old people, by which I mean people my age. And we are old enough to remember Gidget. Sally Field was not always an older woman promoting medications for osteoporosis. <laughs> she got a big boost early on in her career playing this role, a carefree, happy-go-lucky teenage girl. And for you young people who've never seen it, if you want to understand how much things have changed in American culture, a good place to start would be uh, to download an episode of Gidget. You can get it at iTunes for $1.99 an episode. I recommend episode 17 from season one. It's entitled Ring-a-Ding-Ding-Bat. <laughs> the dramatic tension in this gripping episode uh, revolves around Gidget's concern that her new enthusiasm for pop music might possibly lead her father to think that her love and affection for him is in some way diminished. And so the entire program is devoted to her efforts to reassure her father that she is still daddy, daddy's little girl. That's the whole show. And what's striking is that this was the most popular television program for teenagers in 1966. Uh, that's how much things have changed. This program was very popular uh, about four years ago, Gossip Girl. So there are three leading female characters. This, I'm arguing, is characteristic of a contemporary uh, show for teenagers. The uh, caption reads, sexy and insecure. Sexy and insecure 
those words really apply to all three of the leading female characters. They're all sexy and they're all insecure. Gidget, with all due respect, was not sexy and she was not insecure. But these girls are. They're anxious, they're obsessed about 20 different things, they have trouble getting to sleep, trouble staying asleep. Uh, that show's run its course, uh, and now we have HBO's Girls, which some of you may have seen. A different cast and a different story, but pretty much the same girls now in their 20s. Still anxious, still obsessed, still struggling with all different kinds of weird relationships, not sure what they want out of life. This is the new norm. The anxious girl who has trouble sleeping at night, who is obsessed about many different things, has become a cultural norm, especially for middle-income and affluent white girls in the United States. Why? That's the question I try to answer in my third book, Girls on the Edge. And I'm going to give you a, a bit of that answer this evening. Um, but before we get into that, I have to rush to the disclaimer. I've just said that uh, girls today are much more likely, American girls today are much more likely, at least 400% more likely, to be clinically anxious or depressed compared with girls from the same demographic uh, 40 years ago. That is a true statement. But if I don't rush to the disclaimer, I find some people think I'm saying that 40 years ago were the good old days, or 50 years ago were the good old days. I'm not saying that. For girls, there are no good old days. Every era in Western civilization has been sexist. By Western civilization, I mean the civilization we traced to the Greeks and the Romans. By sexist, I mean that every era has valued the interests and achievements of boys and men above the interests and achievements of girls and women. And it's, I think it's worth one slide to recall that 50 years ago, in many states in this country, a married woman could not rent a car, sign for a loan, or start a business without her husband's permission as a matter of law. And I find many people under 30 don't even know this. They apparently don't teach it in school. I think they should. Uh, I'm not talking about Saudi Arabia here. I'm talking about the United States. 50 years ago, if a young woman thought about her future out loud, she would have been encouraged to think of herself as a wife and mother first and having a career second, if at all. And that's not true today, and that's a good thing. I think anyone who cherishes human liberty has to celebrate the fact that girls today have choices. They know that they can have the same choices as their brother, that they, too, can be combat infantry as of this year, if they want to be. They can be surgeons if they want to be. Those options are not closed to them solely on account of being female, as they were closed in the past. And that's a good thing. But I find that many people don't recognize that girls today are facing new challenges, some of which are without precedent. And now I'm referring to texting, Instagram, Facebook, social media. Ten years ago, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter did not exist. It's hard to re recall, but the first iPhone was only launched in 2007. Uh, today, when I meet with uh, girls, as I met with yesterday with fourth and fifth grade girls in Atlanta and sixth, seventh, and eighth grade girls in Atlanta the day before, and I've met with students all across the Twin Cities area and all across Minnesota, from Grand Marais on the north shore of Lake Superior, down to Duluth, down to Rochester, and, and west to Wilmer, uh, 
more than half the girls are on Instagram. Uh, or Twitter or YouTube. Facebook's not so popular with uh, kids in that age group uh, anymore, and, uh, nor is it with 6th, 7th, or 8th graders. It was big a few years back, but it's not anymore. Why? Because you're on it, that's why. Um, it's not cool to be on Facebook now that the grown-ups are on Facebook. But those are the girls. The majority of the boys are, are less engaged in social media. They are busy firing photon torpedoes at the enemy. Uh, or playing Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, or Halo. All right, so social media. You can tell from my tone of voice, I think it's a problem, especially for girls. Well, why? To understand why social media are, in fact, a serious problem and a real challenge for many girls. I think it's helpful to contrast a girl living today with a girl living in ancient times, by which I mean 1993, 20 years ago. <laughs> so, so let's contrast a girl living today with a girl living in 1993. A girl living in 1993, let's imagine it's the evening, she's sitting in her bedroom, she's writing in her diary, by which I mean she's writing with a pen, in, in a bound volume of blank pages made out of dead trees. She's writing about who she likes, who she doesn't like, why she doesn't like them, the kind of girl she really does like, the kind of woman she hopes to become. She might write five pages in an evening. She's not going to show that to anybody. If she has a younger brother, she might keep it under lock and key. But she's doing some very important work. She's figuring out, who am I? Who do I want to become? What do I want? The great American psychologist, Dr. Abraham Maslow, said that figuring out what you really want is not trivial. He said, many adults never achieve it. As you know, I'm a physician, and I know many uh, physicians who are miserable. Uh, they're earning 500000 a year, and they enjoy the prestige that comes with being a successful physician. But if you're working 70 hours a week at a job you don't enjoy, you're a slave. They never did the work that this girl in her with her diary is doing. They never thought, is this what I really want to do? They just figured, well, you know, make a lot of money, people respect you, that's enough, isn't it? No, it's not. If it's not what you're meant to do, it's not the right choice. So she's doing some very important work in that diary. Now, when I meet with students, as I did yesterday and the day before in Atlanta, and as I will do uh, next week in California and the week after that in Nova Scotia, when I meet with students, I ask them, who here has a diary? And I, when I meet with the students, I define a diary very broadly as anything that you write in from time to time. It doesn't have to be a bound volume of blank pages. It might just be a file on your laptop or your iPad. Who here writes in a diary, at least occasionally? Who here... I ask, has uh, Instagram feed, Twitter? Who uploads things on Facebook or YouTube? For those questions, most of the hands go up. But when I ask who here has a diary, maybe one or two out of 20 or 30. The social media have crowded out the diary. There's not time enough for both. And that's a concern, because it's a different activity. 
and the girls often don't realize how different it is. I'll ask them, what's the difference between a diary and your Instagram page? And they'll say, well, Instagram's way better because it's pictures, and a diary doesn't have pictures. Well, that's true, but Instagram is public. You're not going to find any five-page essays about what sort of women, woman I want to become from a girl because, well, on Instagram you can't upload that, but even on Facebook you wouldn't see it because no one's going to read that stuff. What you see are lots of pictures with cute little captions. Lots of photographs. So Mike Stefanone, a professor in New York State but looking nationwide, wondered who posts more photos, the boys or the girls? Well, the girls do. How much more? 50% more? 80% more? No, it's 500% more. The girl, girls post five times as many photos as the boys do, and the photos are different. So the girl and the boy both go to the football game, and they both take pictures at the football game. The boy takes a picture of the game, or of the pretty cheerleader at the game. The girl turns the camera on herself, and she's taking 20, 40, 80, 100 pictures of herself at the game. And then that evening, she's going through those 100 pictures, Professor Stefanone and his colleagues find, She's going through those 100 pictures to find one or two where she's laughing and the kids around her are laughing, and she posts that on her page. Here I am at the football game. We had a great time. Melissa goes to the party and takes 100 pictures and posts the one or two where she's laughing and the kids around her are laughing. Here I am at the party. We had a great time. Stephanie and her friend bake some cookies, and they take pictures. Here we are baking cookies. Don't they look yummy? Vanessa gets a new puppy. She takes 100 pictures, puts the four or five cutest ones on her Instagram page. Here's my new puppy, isn't it cute? Now let's imagine your daughter, 11, 12, 13, 14 years of age. She's sitting in her bedroom, looking at all her friends' Instagram or Facebook or whatever. There's Emily at the football game, she had a great time. There's Melissa at the party, she had a great time. There's Stephanie baking cookies with her friends, she had a great time. There's Vanessa with her puppy. Boy, it's really cute. I'm sitting in my room not doing anything. My life sucks. The more time a girl spends on Facebook or Instagram or any of the other major social media sites, the more likely she is to become depressed. This effect is robust for girls, but much weaker or maybe non-existent altogether for boys. Why is that? Well, it seems that boys feel comfortable posting a wider, a much wider range of their own activities on social media. Vanessa's puppy died a month after she got it, but she posted no photos of the dead puppy. She didn't even mention it. She just stopped mentioning the puppy. No one's going to like your photo of the dead puppy. But it turns out if the boy has a puppy, he will take, and it dies, he'll take a picture of the dead puppy and then he'll put it in the plastic bag and take a picture of the plastic bag and put it up on his page. Boy and a girl both go to a party, they both get drunk, they both throw up. The girl does not take a picture of her vomit, but the boy does. And that may be one reason why boys are less vulnerable to these toxic effects of social media. The boys are posting a wide range of their activities, but the girls, when they are posting about themselves, only post the fun stuff. Here I am having a great time. But the girls don't realize that the other girls are being selective in this way. 
These girls are creating a persona, a brand, that's not genuine. It's not true. It's not representative of everything that's going on in their life. And it's not even authentic. As one girl explained to me, uh, listing your favorite movies, completely fictitious. She's just creating, listing those movies she thinks will impress people, not movies she actually likes. And I pointed out to her, that's not authentic. And she said, Facebook's not about authenticity. She said, it's about polishing your brand. The 17-year-old girl said, it's about polishing your brand. Creating a mask, but the problem is there is not a face behind the mask. She hasn't yet figured out who she really is, but she's concerned about impressing others with her social media site. The difference between a diary and a social media page like Instagram or Facebook is precisely the difference between living and performing. There's nothing wrong with performing, but it's not the same thing as living. And my concern is a lot of these girls don't even perceive the difference. And life becomes a constant performance, which is draining and not authentic. And they're not in touch with who they are. And they may look great, everything's going wonderful, but they are very fragile. And it doesn't take much. These girls are hyper-connected to their peers in this cyber bubble of 24-7 texting and social networking, but they are disconnected from themselves. Kathy Charles, one of the key scholars who found the more time a girl spends on Facebook, the more likely she is to become depressed. Alex Jordan and his colleagues at Stanford, I think, have the key insight into why that is so, as I just described, that girls only post the fun stuff about themselves on Facebook. So a girl looking at her friend's pages may think, everyone else is having a good time, and I'm not. Now, if a grown-up were sitting with her as she was looking at all these different social media pages, the grown-up could explain, look, everyone's just putting the fun stuff on. You know that party that Melissa went to? I heard it was a real bore. And, you know, I hate to say this, but Vanessa's puppy is dead. <laughs> a grown-up could explain this. Incidentally, when I use the term grown-up, I'm not pulling this out of the area. You'll find this research in Chapter 2 of Boys Adrift. Girls reach full maturity in terms of brain development by about 22 years of age. Men, not until 30 years of age. So that explains quite a lot, if you think about it. Um, when I say grown-up, I mean a woman over 22 and a man over 30. So if a grown-up were sitting with this 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old girl, the grown-up could explain, look, everybody's life is a mix of happy and sad, success and failure, achievement and disappointment. And for most of us, there's a lot more disappointment than there is achievement. Life is a series of disappointments, and then you die. Every mature adult understands that, and you could explain that <laughs> to her. But she doesn't know it. No one's sitting with her. She told her parents she didn't want anyone to be looking over her shoulder. So I did a talk like this in Pittsburgh. I'm returning to Pittsburgh in a few weeks. And I got, it was an independent school, and the head of school sent me a note saying, 
your presentation was much too dark, especially when you said life is a series of disappointments and then you die. She said, you need to change your presentation. And so I have. I now put in this slide. And I explain, look, this key insight is not my invention. This is traditional to really all wisdom traditions. The first noble truth of Buddhism is that life is suffering. Uh, Plato in the Phaedo, the fourth dialogue, uh, tells us that Socrates, uh, contemplating his own imminent death, taught his students that true philosophy is the cheerful contemplation of your own death, that the mark of the real philosophers is that they face their death peacefully and with a smile. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says that the world is condemned to frustration. But then the same man tells his readers they should rejoice continually. Why are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to rejoice continually if the world's condemned to frustration? That's the first question of any serious philosophy or any genuine religion. Look, I can tell you, I can tell you your future. You will be disappointed. Loved ones will die, and then you will die. The end. That's the story of your life. In view of that fact, and it is a fact, how can you live cheerfully? How can you follow Paul's advice to rejoice continually? That's the first question on the road to being a mature adult. My concern about social media is that it is not only not helping girls to become mature, it's, it's pointing them in the wrong direction by creating this fictitious world where everyone else is having a great time and I'm not. It's not what kids need. If teenagers have not grappled with these questions, which is best done in a quiet bedroom late at night with the lights out, that's when teenagers used to think about such things, but if they have not grappled with those questions, they are being set up for the great disappointment. The Great Disappointment is a phrase I take from a book written by the poet Robert Bly, now 86 years old and living just a few miles from here, I am told. And his colleague, Marion Woodman, so an old man, Robert Bly, joined with an older woman, Marion Woodman, psychotherapist, to write a book about how girls become women how boys become men, and what that means, what that means, the maiden king. And they observe that part of becoming a mature adult means figuring out what sort of woman you're going to be, what sort of man you're going to be, how are you going to balance your inner masculine and feminine. Every enduring culture, which we have any record, has taken that transition to a gendered adulthood very seriously. When I met with the youth pastors and youth staff earlier today, we looked at some examples. Kids don't want to be adults. Girls want to be women, and boys want to be men. What, what does that mean? American parents no longer know what to say. We ignore that. And 
the result, as Robert Bly and Marion Woodman say, is that girls and boys look to the marketplace where they adopt the ready-made feminine and the ready-made masculine, which, as Bly and Woodman observe, are caricatures. But the kids have no way of knowing they're caricatures because they have received no instruction. The caricatures online and in the movies are merely about sexuality. But there's much more to being feminine or masculine than sexuality. So Blind Woodman go on to observe that when a child is 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of age, it's very characteristic to find kids in that age group, both girls and boys, who have this certainty that something marvelous is about to happen. That's their phrase. Something marvelous is about to happen. I'm going to be famous. You're going to see my picture on the cover of the magazine. You're going to see me on TV. I'm going to be on American Idol. I'm going to be in the Olympics. I'm going to play for the NFL. I'm going to be a, a great entertainer. I'm going to be a movie star. I'm going to be an entrepreneur, a boy uh, told me. Um, he said, Mark Zuckerberg's not that smart, and he's got like $19 billion. I'm way smarter than him. I'll probably have like $40 billion. <laughs> and this middle school boy was absolutely serious. And that's okay. You know, that's a characteristic of that age group. The problem is we now feed that. We didn't used to. Fifty years ago, if a kid said, I'm going to create new companies and I'm going to have $10 billion, the teachers and the parents would say, uh, no, you're not. Okay, get to work. But today we say, great, go for it. You can be anything you want to be if you just work hard enough. The problem with this uh, enthusiastic statement that you can be anything you want to be if you just work hard enough is that it's a lie. It's not a true statement. It's a false statement. But we now teach kids, you're special because you're you, and you will see this or similar signs in American elementary schools. I have seen it many times. Again, Jean Twang, once again, I mentioned her name, she again has compared using constant parameters and, and word, questions whose wordings have not changed at all. Fifty years ago, researchers asked American teenagers, do you think you're somebody really special? In 1962, more than 70% said, no, I'm not anybody special. But today, when you ask American teenagers, are you special, kids, more than 80% say, yes, I'm totally amazing. I'm probably the greatest person there is. You'll find more on this in Gene Twang's book, Generation Me. Very, very useful book uh, written for anybody. You don't have to be a scholar to read this book really takes you through all this research. And it's very troubling. Uh, you know, people who launched the whole culture of self-esteem, that everybody gets a trophy, they had good intentions. But they didn't realize that the end result of telling kids you're special because you're you, the end result, the unintended result, is kids who think, I'm more special than anybody else. That wasn't intended, but that's what's happened. We now teach kids, you can be anything you want to be. Anything's possible. Believe in yourself. Follow your dreams. 
So as I said, I've met girls who want to be great entertainers or novelists, or they read about a girl who has a blog that three million people follow, and she just sits around in pajamas, eats Twinkies, and writes her blog, and get, earns $100,000 a year. And girls say, that's for me. That's what I'm going to do. And they don't realize the bizarre and unique alignment of stars that created that one situation and how unlikely it is to recur. Uh, boys want to be professional football players, hockey players, entrepreneurs. It's not going to happen. So my father died a few months ago, um, and I, he lived in Los Angeles, West Los Angeles, for the last 50 years. And when I would, I would visit him over those many years, we would often uh, go out to lunch or dinner in one of the wonderful restaurants in Beverly Hills or West LA. It was about 10 years ago that we were having dinner in a, in a restaurant in Beverly Hills. And I finally had to say to the waitress, I said, look, I'm happily married, I got my wedding ring, I hope you won't be offended, but I just have to say, you're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Um, what are you doing here? Uh, because she was absolutely staggering. She was very beautiful and charming and gracious and funny. And what are you doing waiting tables at a not even that very special restaurant? And she said she grew up in Nebraska, and everyone said, you're amazingly beautiful and talented and funny and a great dancer. Go to Hollywood. You know, you're way more beautiful and talented than anyone we see on television. Um, that's where you belong. And that was five years ago. And she's done a bunch of auditions, and she's waiting tables. Kids read the articles about the girl who dreams of being a star, and she was certain that if she just worked hard enough, it would happen. And every issue of People magazine has such a story. But the industry can only absorb a handful. And how many are there in West LA, Beverly Hills? Hundreds, thousands, who knows? Nobody keeps track. What happens when this young person realizes it's not going to happen? I'm not going to be in the Olympics. I'm not going to be on American Idol. I'm not going to be a famous movie star. I'm not even going to be in the movies. It's not happening. That's what Blind Woodman called the great disappointment. What happens next is different on average depending whether you're talking about a boy or a girl. If we're talking about a boy who had a dream of being rich and famous or playing uh, professional hockey or whatever and realizes it's not going to happen, many of these boys, you'll find, make a seamless and almost painless transition into the world of video games. And this boy takes great satisfaction in being a guild master in World of Warcraft, completing all the missions, in Halo or Call of Duty and, or Grand Theft Auto and raises his status in the eyes of other boys like him. And I've met many boys who seem quite content with that. But very few girls take real satisfaction in firing photon torpedoes at imaginary enemies. For many girls, the next step is a collapse. 
or a very abrupt transition into obsessions with fitness or sports or grades or anorexia of the soul, which I, I don't have time to go into, but I explore that idea at great length in chapter three of Girls on the Edge. So Ashley was an amazing athlete. And in my little town in Montgomery County, Maryland, when she was in 10th grade, scouts were coming from various NCAA Division I programs saying, look, we're not allowed to talk to you yet. We just want to give your parents a brochure. I want you to be thinking, we'd love to give you a full ride, full scholarship to play soccer at our college. Because she was amazing in terms of speed, agility, and accuracy as a striker. She was amazing. Until she wasn't. Uh, one day she planted her foot wrong, felt a pop, fell to the ground, complete rupture of the anterior cruciate ligament. And the surgeon explaining what they were going to do, harvest cadaver ligament and attempt to reconstruction, going to be a long process of rehab. She said, all right, all right, you just have to promise me that if I work incredibly hard, I'll get back to where I was. And he said, surgeons don't make promises. He said, look, I'm hopeful you'll be able to walk, but your parents are signing a consent form saying that you may lose your leg. And that happens. I'm not making any promises. And the likelihood that you will ever regain what you had before, look, we're taking ligament from an old dead person and sewing it in your knee. What's the likelihood that that ligament will ever have the suppleness of your native ligament? I would say it's zero. And he left the room. I've met many people over the years who are physicians who should not be physicians. Because I think the first requirement of being a good physician is that you really care about your fellow human being. And unfortunately, there are physicians who don't. And it seems like a disproportionate number of them end up as surgeons. <laughs> uh, so this, this man's bedside manner left a lot to be desired. Well, look, that would have been tough for anyone to hear. But in this girl's case, it precipitated a complete existential collapse. She thought she had a lot of friends. They were all the girls on her various travel teams, and they stopped coming by, because it was like pouring salt on the wound to talk about soccer, when no one knew if this girl was ever going to play. She thought she knew who she was. She was the great soccer player. But now she's not the great soccer player. So who is she? She looks in the mirror, and she has no idea who this kid is, this pathetic invalid looking back at her and she collapsed into a near catatonic and drug-resistant depression. She, her sense of self had been all tied up in what she was doing in the performance. She had no core identity aside from the performance. And when the show was over and the mask was pulled off, there was no face there. So I had the privilege of interviewing Rabbi Sandy Eisenberg Sasso, one of the first women to lead a Jewish congregation. And she talks about why faith matters. 
She says, we want our children to be more the consumers and competitors. We want them to have courage in difficult times. We want them to have a sense of joy and purpose. That's what it means to nurture their spirit. And you'll find a lot more of that in chapter 7, the final chapter of my book, Girls on the Edge. But American culture is turning kids away from that contemplation and uh, the spiritual journey that every human being, I believe, must make. In the United States, we have this unique problem of the new cult of fame. So researchers at UCLA, looking at the most popular TV shows in each decade from 1960 to the present, find that from 1960 through 2000, the most popular shows with a young audience, children and teenagers, consistently valued friendship, being liked, being part of a community, uh, as the most important uh, feature. Uh, shows like The Andy Griffith Show in the 1960s, The Cosby Show in the late 80s and 90s. I was pretty robust. But in the last 10 years, it changed very suddenly. Suddenly, the most important priority in the most popular shows is becoming famous, being famous. Being liked isn't important anymore. It dropped way down. This was quite sudden. For 40 years of television, being famous ranked near the bottom of the list. Out of 16 parameters, it was 15 or 16, and suddenly it's number one. Uh, you'll find more on this in a New York Times article entitled, No Stardom Until After Homework. So when they were doing this study, American Idol was the most popular show for American teenagers. Which is not about being liked. It's about winning, beating the other guys, and being famous. Rebecca Black is illustrative. Uh, she's just really an average girl. She got her mother to pay $4,000 to have a professional music video made with her as a star. She uploaded it to YouTube. Nobody looked at it. And then all of a sudden, for reasons still completely obscure, it went viral. And everyone started looking at it, saying, this is so awful. Can you believe how awful this is? It's terrible. And everybody was watching it. And they were saying, wow, that's gotten a million views. What's so interesting about it? And more people would watch it and say, it's terrible. It's totally a waste of time. Got 20 million views in seven days. And then she was on the Jay Leno show. And Good Morning America. And she's 13 years old. And most of the comments are negative. Her song went to number 61 on the Billboard Top 100. Her video received over 160 million views. And she decided she had to launch her career. So she dropped out of school and to become homeschooled, but her parents are full-time veterinarians and they're not staying home. So homeschooled means she's sitting in front of a computer. Um, and she's still there. And nothing has happened in her career. She hasn't gotten a record deal. Both of her parents worked as veterinarians. So that's Rebecca Black. But I, and you may not have heard her name, but I can tell you of many, many American girls who say, I'm prettier than she is. I'm more talented than she is. Mom, I need $4,000 to, to make a video. And the girls think, I'm prettier than she is. I'm, I'm a better singer. I'm more talented. And she got to be on Jay Leno, and I'm probably going to be incredibly famous.
Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor riches to men of understanding, but time and chance happens to them all. That's what I learned as a child, that there's a lot of chance in who wins and who loses. We used to teach kids that, but we no longer do. We now tell kids, if you work hard enough, it will come true, and that's not true and it sets them up for the great disappointment. We should be telling them the truth, which is Ecclesiastes 9, verse 11. You may be the fastest and not win the race. You may be the strongest and not win the battle. You may be the wisest and be poor. That's not dark, that's truth, and we've known it for more than 2,000 years. And we used to teach it, and we no longer do. And the result is we put kids at risk. Fifty years ago, there was a consensus that the mission of education was to become a better human being. Find something you can do well and find satisfaction in doing it well. Be a good friend or a good mother or a good father. That was sufficient. Not anymore. Now you find that kids feel if they're not famous, their life is without meaning. Whoa. There's something existential about that. I'm not sure what it is. Uh, See if it's something I did here. Can you all gather around the screen up here? <laughs> uh, the search for an authentic sense of self without guidance from the grown-ups is likely to fail. So Dr. Gordon Neufeld, Canadian, has written about how 50 years ago, and there's a lot of good documentation on this, kids cared more about what their parents thought than what, about what their peers thought. But today, that is not the case. Let me see what I can do here. Let's see if that helps. Yeah. So the attitude of the modern American teenager, nicely summarized in this best-selling parenting book, get out of my life, but first, would you drive me and share with them all? <laughs> American kids today value the opinion of peers way above the opinion of parents. That is something new. That was not historically part of American culture. So Dr. Neufeld observes how toxic that can be. Uh, that one example from my own practice is not his example. Uh, parents uh, were planning a weekend ski vacation, but their daughter, 12 years old, said, well, I don't want to go skiing. I'll just, I'll just spend the weekend with my best friend. And her mom said, well, I'm glad she's so independent. She's not independent. She's not independent. She's merely transferred her dependent and need for attachment from her parents to her peer much earlier than she should have done. And why is that dangerous? Look, most cultures of which you have any record have been characterized by strong attachments across generations. Children and teenagers have been oriented toward the adult community, but today kids are oriented toward the marketplace and attached to peers instead of their parents. Why is that a problem? Good parents offer unconditional attachment and affection, but peers cannot and do not. Good parents sacrifice for their kids, but same-age peers cannot and do not sacrifice for other same-age peers. It's not in their job description. Good, good parents, even an average parent is a saint compared to a same-age peer. As Dr. Neufeld says, it's part of the task of parenting to be taken for granted. 
My daughter can say to me, I hate you, I hate you, I, I never want to talk to you ever again as long as I live. She's seven years old. And she knows it's not going to change anything in our relationship. I'm not going to stop loving her. She might lose some privileges because of her outburst, but the bedrock of our relationship is unchanged, and she knows that. But if she were to say the same words to a friend, I hate you and I never want to talk to you again as long as I live, that could end the friendship. Friendships between same-age peers are contingent and ephemeral, and they both know it. They both know that one wrong word could end the friendship. And so girls are anxious. They've got to check their phone every five minutes because if Emily sent Melissa a text and Melissa doesn't answer it promptly, Emily might think Melissa didn't like her anymore. That's one factor driving this explosion in anxiety among girls, especially in the last decade. What can you do about it? Final minutes. We need to restore those bonds across generations. And it has to begin with the family. As I said to the youth workers earlier today, it's not confined to the family, but it must begin with the family. And that means you've got to fight for supper with your kids. No mobile devices allowed at the table. And dad, that includes you. Uh, here there's an interesting generational difference. Among teenagers, girls are much more likely than boys are to bring their phone to the table and be checking for messages at the dinner table. But among adults, it's the dad who's more likely than mom to bring his, used to be a Blackberry, now it's an iPhone, to the table, and he's checking email. At the, at the, don't do that. Put the device away and talk to your kids. So just 30 years ago, about two-thirds of teenagers, 15, 16, 17 years of age, answered yes to the question, have you had a meal at home with a parent in the last 24 hours? In just 13 years' time, that proportion went from two-thirds to one-third. A really astonishing change in 13 years, and the latest data suggests that trend line's continuing, that we're now down to less than 30%. The majority of teenagers now say that in the last 24 hours, they have not had even one meal at home with a parent. When you're with your child, turn off your phone and make eye contact. Introduce your daughter or son to your friends. Choose vacations that bridge generations, and that means outdoors. Choose outdoor vacations. Call up the lodge and say, hey, do you folks have good uh, wireless coverage uh, for the internet at your lodge? You do? Okay, sorry, we're gonna go somewhere that doesn't. You need an unplugged vacation. Just Google unplugged vacations, uh, as I did, unplugged vacations Minnesota this afternoon. Uh, and look at the wireless coverage, okay? Here we are in Plymouth, Minnesota. This is the Verizon map. Red is coverage, okay? You don't want red. You want white. So you're gonna head north. So in preparing for this talk, I Googled unplugged vacations Minnesota. And this is the big hit near International Falls. And it looks great. I've never been there. It's about five hours drive, north to Duluth, and then, and then the trip really begins. Uh, looks like a lot of fun. They've got a lot of water things to do. Um, and for all levels of canoers, including beginners who've never been in a canoe, uh, things you can do with the family, 
And yeah, the canoe might tip over. That's part of the fun. This is what family is about. It's not about girls texting other girls on vacation. So when you go on the ski vacation and your daughter asks if she can bring her best friend along, the answer is no, she can't. Because if she does, it's going to be her and her friend going up on the chairlift. And the point of the vacation is for you, the parent, and her to be on the chairlift. That's a great opportunity for her to talk and you to listen. Another picture from uh, Voyager's National Park. But five hours drive? Yes, five hours drive. That's the point. That's the point. You're trying to create connections. A long drive is great. The first hour can be tough because your daughter's going to be annoyed that you took away her phone and that you're going somewhere with no wireless access and she's going to be cut off from civilization and stranded with you. But after an hour, she'll typically warm up because there's no one else to talk to. And that's when the vacation begins. So my wife and I have a Ford, had a Ford truck which uh, died peacefully after uh, 15 years of loyal service. And so last year, we were shopping, and we were in a new car uh, dealer for the first time in 15 years. And I discovered things have changed. They now are promoting DVD players for the back seat. Uh, specifically so that your kid can be entertained and not have to talk to you during a long drive. So the simpler models have one DVD, uh, but others have uh, built-in headsets, okay? So isn't this wonderful? Mom is looking back at her two kids and smiling. Isn't this great? We can drive for hours and I never have to talk to my kids at all. Uh, and now they have these dual DVDs, so each kid has their own DVD player and entertainment console. You know, what are people thinking? This is not what vacations are for. Don't put a DVD player, don't bring a DVD player in the car. The point of the trip is to reestablish those connections. And God gave us boredom so that kids would talk to you. Final slide. We have to teach kids to celebrate the ordinary, the miracle, the mystery of life in the silence in bedtime without a mobile device. We have to teach kids to value relationships above fame or wealth. We used to do that, and by we I mean Americans. We used to do a good job of that. We no longer do. There's a lot of data on that. That's where I think we've gone astray. So anyhow, here is my contact information. Second book, Boys Adrift. Third book, Girls on the Edge. That's the email address, mcrcad at verizon.net. Or you can just go to leonardsacks.com, which has all my contact information. And now we can have questions, right? After that, everyone applauds for you. Okay. Thank you. You, you can rest your voice for a second. I think I put the fear of God into Dr. Sachs earlier about ending at 8 o'clock, and you did very well. Thank, Thank you. you. And I'm going to write that last one down. God gave us boredom so kids would talk to their parents. I'm going to post that on our Facebook page, Thank actually, you. tomorrow. <laughs> um, just a couple of announcements. Thank you all again for being here tonight. Um, Scott, if you're, are you in the sound room still, Scott? I assume you're back there. Um, 
if you could show yourself. Could you just turn on number five and number seven out here on the, on the soundboard for the questions? Um, while Scott's doing that, um, I always like to plug our next event. We've got another wonderful lineup of speakers this year. The next talk is with Bob Goff, um, who wrote the book Love Does. He'll be with us uh, November 14th. Uh, if you would like to get emails about upcoming events, you can give us your email address either on this green sheet or you can go to faithandlife.org. Um, and sign up for emails there. And yes, despite the downside of social media, Faith and Life is also on Facebook. So if you would like to like us on Facebook, that is an important way that we're able to communicate uh, with people who are interested in these wonderful talks. I always have to say a word of thanks um, as well. For 11 years now, these events have been supported entirely and totally through the generosity of individuals and companies. They are not part of the church budget, so every year we have to raise the funds to bring wonderful speakers like Dr. Sachs here. Our supporters are mentioned uh, in your program. I will mention uh, at least our corporate sponsors, Thrivent Financial for uh, Lutheran's Thrivent Community Crossroads. That's one of the particular uh, parts of Thrivent. Uh, Productivity Inc., Cressa, TCF Bank, Rapid Packaging, Sparky Abrasives, uh, we have some uh, academic partners, Luther Seminary, McLaurin CSF at the University of Minnesota, uh, and then um, the Bookcase and Fuzzy Duck are in-kind sponsors. And then you see all of the individuals who make these possible. You are here tonight free of charge, thanks to the generosity of these people and companies, many of whom are with us tonight. Would you please say thank you to them? So we've got some time for some questions. I think, with your permission, I may even turn the lights up um, so that I hope I don't wake you all up. But I'm going to go do that. And again, there's a microphone here and on the other aisle over there. Okay. Hopefully, hopefully I'll get to a question here pretty soon. Uh, one thing, I've got two little girls in sports. And I noticed the parents are becoming more obsessive, too. And sports, seem, it doesn't seem like we respect seasons anymore year-round soccer, year-round hockey, and they, it's, there's peer pressure between parents of like, well, you better sign your girl up for winter soccer or summer hockey because they might miss out and then not make the next team. Is that something you see about parents obsessing too? Yes. Uh, so it's a really good point, and it is the, uh, if you'll forgive me, I, I, I read evaluations when I do these and when people turn them in, and sometimes they say, I wish Dr. Sex would stop plugging his book so much. Um, it is the whole focus of chapter six of Girls on the Edge. The final three chapters of Girls on the Edge are mind, body, and spirit. Mind is academics, chapter five. Body is chapter six, chapter seven, spirit. Uh, basically religion and, and spiritual uh, formation. But chapter six, body, begins exactly with your question. 30 years ago, we didn't have soccer leagues for eight-year-old girls. Now we do. And a lot of parents, especially white parents in middle-income and affluent communities, feel like, well, i got to get her started early or she's going to miss out. There's now a great deal of research on this topic. Do girls do better in soccer if they start at 8 years of age or at 14 years of age? The answer, without equivocation, is 14 years of age. There is no dispute in the literature on that point, and the evidence is overwhelming. 
Twice, the American Academy of Pediatrics has issued white papers, which is its highest level of consensus, saying kids should not start serious competitive play before the end of puberty, and they should not play the same sport all year round. We have overwhelming evidence that kids who play the same sport over, uh, all year round are at much greater risk of career-ending injury and are much more likely to burn out. And there's no dispute in the scholarship. But the message is not getting out because parents are freaking one another out. How do we know what to do as parents? How do we decide what we should do every day as a parent? Well, we think back to our own childhood, and if our parents did it right, we try to do what they did. If our parents didn't, then we try to do things differently. That's one way. But in this case, there is no analogy from our childhood. Uh, we can't think back to uh, travel teams and year-round teams for nine-year-olds because they didn't exist even 20 years ago. So our own childhood offers no guidance. So the second thing parents do is they look to their peers. They look to other parents. And you see all the other parents are doing it, so I better do it too. I don't want my daughter to miss out. And that was really a major motivation for writing that chapter of Girls on the Edge to provide an accessible resource that's not written in the legalese of the white papers, just comes out and says, don't do it. All the experts say it's a really terrible idea, and here's why. Kids burn out. Kids need unstructured play. Kids need a mix of different kinds of play to develop in a healthy way. If they're doing the same thing, they will burn out, they will get injured, and, at, and what we're seeing right now in the United States is this precipitous drop in athletic participation among girls after 13 years of age. As soon as they go to high school, they all start dropping out. That didn't used to be the case, but it is now. And again, I, I hope you'll take a look at Chapter 6. I left copies with the pastor so you can borrow his. Um, <laughs> right? Um, because it is, it's really a bad thing. Uh, let your kids do a, in, insist that your kids do a wide range of activities. And as long as you raised it, and this might be my last chance, I want to say that the best sports for girls are field hockey, soccer, basketball. Those are the best sports, number one, because they have a lower risk of injury than what I'm just going to mention in a moment, and because the focus is on what you do and not how you look. The worst activity for your daughter is cheerleading and dance team. Because in those sports, the focus is on how you look. Were you smiling when you did that stunt? Uh, did your socks match? And the last thing American girls need is more focus on their appearance. Which sport, which after-school activity in the United States is most likely to result in catastrophic injury, catastrophic injury defined as death or paralysis? And most Americans will say, well, football. Wrong. Cheerleading. By a wide margin, per hours played, cheerleading is much more hazardous than a football. Again, old people, people my age are like, what do you mean? I thought the cheerleaders were just waving pom-poms. Well, they were 30 years ago. But cheerleading today means gymnastics without a mat. And they're throwing girls up in the air, and they're supposed to catch them. So you, imagine if you have a 100-pound projectile coming towards you, and it's wobbling. 
The gut reaction is to get out of the way, and that's what they do. And the girl lands on her head. And I described, there's multiple uh, cases. It's, it's, it's horrifying. Cheerleading in the United States is regulated as an activity, not as a sport. You don't have to, the, the uh, teacher in charge of the chess team doesn't have to have any training in first aid or injury assessment, neither does the cheerleading coach. And it is absolutely insane. Uh, and I emphasize this because you've got to start early. And people say, well, you know, in five-year-old and six-year-old cheer and dance team, they don't do any stunts like that. Yeah, but she's forming her peer group. And girls want to do what their friends are doing. And if all her friends are going on, she wants to go on. Get her in with the kids doing soccer, field hockey, lacrosse, and stay away from cheerleading and dance team. That's defended in chapter six of Girls on the Edge. Other comment, question? Thank you, Dr. Sachs. As you render all this information, it seems to me that uh, there's, there's a predominant tension in this craziness of our culture in that the lure, the, the studious lure of this culture upon our children uh, is something that is not now matched by parents. Our parents don't know how to connect with their kids in light of this, and so we're suffering from what I suppose we might call relationship deficit disorder because parents don't know how to have the kind of relationship you're talking about with their kids. They feel intimidated. They feel insecure themselves. They have anxieties of their own. Are you aware of or do you promote or write about um, what parents need um, you know, and what kind of community supports are needed so that parents can, can kind of overcome this? Well, parents need to be confident of their authority. And my short answer to your question is that many of parents' problems are problems of their own making. Parents have stepped away from their authority in this country, and much more so in this country than elsewhere. And that's where the international comparisons are helpful. So I was speaking in Chappaqua, which is an affluent suburb north of New York City. And a father was telling me how his, he and his wife made a healthy and nutritious supper for the family, including their daughter and their son. And the son and daughter, who were teenagers, came home from school, and they said, ooh, yuck, uh, we want to eat that. Can we just order pizza? And dad said, okay. And I said, why'd you say okay? Why didn't you just say this is what's for supper? And he said, well, I don't believe in using starvation as a form of discipline. I said, they're not going to starve. Look, 40 years ago, if, or 30 years ago, if mom had made supper for her children and the kids came home and said, yuck, I don't want to eat that, she'd say, fine, you'll see it again tomorrow. She's not, <laughs> she's not going to order pizza for them because they don't approve of her choice of supper. Uh, 40 years ago, we did have foods like pizza, french fries, potato chips, or ice cream, but they were occasional treats. But now I can tell you about many affluent homes where kids are eating pizza, french fries, potato chips, and uh, sugar sodas, uh, or pop, as they call them here, uh, on, a, on a daily basis. The rate of obesity has more than tripled for both girls and boys in the United States over the last 30 years. There are several factors driving that, but one big one is that 30 years ago, parents told kids what's for supper. And today, parents ask kids what the kids want for supper. Kids are not competent to make that choice. Well, some of them are. Some kids will ask for broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, cauliflower, spinach, and asparagus. But others will ask for 
French fries, potato chips, and ice cream, and that's one factor. Now, how does that tie into your point? Parents today are concerned, overly concerned, in my judgment, about their kids liking them. They want to be liked by their kids. They want their kids to regard them as their friends. And so they don't want to do anything that would upset the kids. So if the other kids are going off and doing something, the parents want their kid to do it as well. If the other eight-year-olds have a smartphone, the parents are buying a smartphone for their eight-year-old, which is insane. But the parent is reluctant to say, okay, I don't think it's a good idea for you to be taking photos of your friends in the bathroom and sending them out by emails, which eight-year-olds are very proficient at doing. I don't think you should do that. I'm not going to get you a phone because I don't see any point in putting you in such a situation. I'm not going to get you a smartphone. It's the reasonable, rational thing to do, but the parent is concerned that the child will say, I hate you. You're ruining my whole life. I'm never going to talk to you again. And so parents today are uncertain because they are anxious for their kids to like them. The first prerequisite of being a good parent is that you cannot be concerned with whether your child likes you or not. The commandment is to honor your parents. There's no commandment anywhere in scripture to love a parent. Now, ironically, in my firsthand experience as a clinician and a veteran of 90,000-some office visits over the last 27 years, I have found that the families where the love between parent and child is strongest and most robust, robust is in the parents who know how to be authoritative, who know how to assert their authority uh, and who tell their kids, as Beth Fayard, a woman I just interviewed for my fourth book, because I knew her from 20 years of medical practice. The other girls were all getting smartphones. Her girls didn't. Uh, the other girls were all staying out late and going on sleepovers. Her girls didn't. And her girls love their mother more than you could imagine. And I have met with each of them separately. But that can't be your objective. If your objective is for your kids to like you, you won't realize that objective. All you'll accomplish is your kids will not respect you. If your objective is that your kids should be honest and trustworthy and value important things and not be concerned about possessions or appearances, then you may find that your kids love you with a love you can't imagine. But you can't go after it. You have to go after what parents are supposed to go after. So a lot of parents are very anxious because they've got these conflicting objectives. On the one hand, they want their kids to value important things and not be concerned about having the latest gadgets or the latest clothes. On the other hand, their kids say, all the other kids have an iPhone and all the other girls are wearing this. And the parents, again, look into their peers, say, oh, it's, it's kind of true. So if everyone else is doing it, I guess I should too wrong. We live in a toxic culture. That wasn't true historically. Kathleen Kovner Klein and her colleagues at Dartmouth found that for most of American history, kids born and raised in this culture were healthier than kids who just arrived in the United States from overseas. That was certainly true from colonial times through the 1960s. But then something began to change in the 1970s, and we've now flipped completely over. We now have what these scholars call the immigrant paradox.
And Kathleen Kovner Klein, professor of medicine, illustrates the immigrant paradox this way. She says, imagine you've got two homes right next to each other in an upscale neighborhood. Both homes have the same family composition, mother, father, son, daughter, both same age, same household income. The only difference between the two homes is that in this home, mother, father, son, and daughter were all born and raised in the United States. In the home next door, mother, father, son, and daughter were all born and raised in Bangalore, India, and they've just arrived here. Now, Dr. Klein asks, in which home are we more likely to find that the girl has an eating disorder, that the girl has a diagnosed anxiety disorder, that the girl is clinically depressed, that the girl is cutting herself with razor blades? On each of those parameters, it's much more likely that the American girl has those problems than that the girl who just arrived from India has these problems. In which home are we more likely to find that the boy says school is a stupid waste of time, that the boy's been diagnosed with attention deficit or arrested for street racing? On each of those parameters, it is many times more likely, like factor of 10 more likely, that the boy born and raised in this country will have those problems compared to the boy who just arrived from India. She concludes that American culture today, unlike 50 years ago, is toxic to children and teenagers. And what she means by that, she's a physician. She knows what toxic means. Toxic means that the longer you are exposed to it, the more likely you are to see an adverse effect. So that boy and girl who just arrived here from Bangalore, the first few months, you probably won't see any of those problems. But if they stay here for a few years, you start to see that prevalence among the new kids rise, and it begins to approach after five to seven years. It's very close to the kids born and raised in this country. American popular culture is now toxic to children and teenagers. And that means that you as the parent have to find the courage to do things differently from your peers. Because your peers, i.e. other American parents similarly situated, are doing it wrong. They're letting the kids decide. You need to be the parent, not focus on whether or not your kids like you, but focus on teaching them the right thing. So that's, that's my answer. Um, let's take one final question, Charlie. Mm -hmm. um, in continu continuing the discussion on uh, authority and parents, uh, you know, developing uh, some authority in the, in the home, I've, uh, as a single parent, I've got my, my last, my youngest daughter, uh, 17, uh, senior in high school, now going off to, uh, you know, going off to college. Um, and I know that, that there's different ways that kids can separate from their parents. Um, any advice to, to us parents that are watching their youngest kids leave um, in terms of, uh, you know, when do you, when do you, you know, when do you have that authority? When do you let it go? Um, any thoughts on that would be helpful. Yeah, that's a really excellent question. And there's a lot of, uh, research and evidence that is relevant because something very weird is going on right now that is, pertains to your question. It used to be that kids leaving home and going to college was a major milestone. And now they're away from home and they might talk to their parents maybe once a week, maybe once a month, write them letters. But now we're seeing a growing proportion of kids, especially white kids from middle income and affluent neighborhoods where they're texting their mom six times a day. They're incapable of living on their own. And this is the weird irony. Parents surrendered their authority, partly in hopes that, well, kids need to make good choices, you know, and so we'll let them decide, and, and then they'll be independent. But they're not. 
The kids today, many of them, are less independent, less able to thrive on their own. But it's really difficult for a parent to say, don't call me unless it's an emergency, or don't call me more than once a week. I don't know you and I don't know your daughter. And the right answer to that question would depend on knowing a lot about you and about your daughter. But I can tell you that in general, I can see you're a white person and you're in this part of uh, the metropolitan area, which means you're probably not living on food stamps. Uh, so middle income and affluent uh, white people, the error that they are most often make, making is that they don't cut the cord. They continue to check in on their kid daily, several times a day, and their, parent, their kid continues to check in with them. And we're hearing all these crazy stories now of kids who are graduating from university and going to their job interview with their parents. This is happening, and it's mostly middle-income and affluent white kids that it's happening to. So middle-income and affluent white families, more than any other demographic, are really confused, are uh, uncertain about how to help kids leave the home. And, and I have such admiration for my late mother, um, Professor of Pediatrics at Case Western, Dr. Janet Berman-Sachs. I was the youngest of three boys, and we were over at a, a friend's house, and um, the mother of the other household said, oh, your baby's going to go away to college. You must be so sad. And my mom raised her eyebrows and said, well, they do grow up, you know. Um, and she was fine. So anyhow, um, we need to adjourn. I'm not going anywhere. My flight doesn't leave till tomorrow morning, so I'll hang around <laughs> as late as anyone has questions. Before we head out, uh, we always give our speakers a little gift. It's a granite plaque, uh, which in your case says, with thanks to Leonard Sachs for bringing faith to life. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks to all of you for coming. We'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Thank you. 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 Thank you